Amen. All right, we are in Exodus 34, the very end part, and we're really ending a section of the book of Exodus, the section being um, the, uh, most people would refer to it as the golden calf incident, and we're going to be done with that today, and we really then go back into something we already studied, which is the tabernacle itself. We go through the construction of the tabernacle. I'm going to go very quickly through that part of the scripture because we spent so much time on it when we talked about the plans for the tabernacle. There's a lot of repeat material there. Um, but this is the end of a section. And we, um, it, it's interesting how everything kind of comes into focus at the end. Last week, we talked about God renewing the covenant with his people and and he rewrites the Ten Commandments, and he reestablishes some other principles. Um, he did that the first time, called the Book of the Covenant, but this time all of them were dealing with God's relationship to Israel. So keep my festivals, keep my Sabbaths, um, don't make any uh, idols, um, and so on. Every one of them was pointed that direction. At the beginning of that passage, he makes the statement, I am a jealous God. So we talked about that last week. God is a jealous God. Um, that rubs us wrong in our culture because we think of jealousy as almost a universal negative, but it's not negative to be jealous. There is a proper place for jealousy, and the proper place for jealousy is in a covenantal relationship based upon love and if that relationship is threatened, the proper response is to be jealous. So any husband or any wife understands that feeling. If your husband or wife becomes interested in a person of the opposite sex, um, you should be concerned and you should be jealous. Jealous for that relationship, because the relationship's important. And what we see is God's responding as a jealous God. They start worshiping another God. The Bible calls that spiritual adultery. They were prostituting themselves. And God's response is to um, threaten to break the relationship. I will no longer be their God. In fact, I'm gonna destroy them. Um, I will no longer be their God. I will no longer go with them. And Moses intervenes and intercedes. One of the amazing things in this passage, the whole thing from Exodus 32 to 34 is the elevation of Moses as um, almost a perfect mediator for the people of Israel in that he comes in at the right time, he says the right things, and he actually gets elevated to the point where now when God is talking, God doesn't even talk to the people, he talks to Moses. He talks about, I'm gonna make a covenant with you and the people, you and your people. Moses is the, inter the mediator between them. But God's, uh, the people have repented they have turned back to God. We see that when God threatens to remove his presence, that um, the people mourn and they, um, they are distraught and then they worship God whenever they watch Moses go outside the camp to go and meet with God. They, they, they stand and they worship. And I think the intent is that they have truly turned back to the Lord. God's anger is now spent he renews the covenant, and as we said last week, he renews it in a um, spectacular fashion. In chapter 34, verse 10, he says, Behold, 
I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. All and all the people among you whom you shall see the all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. No other nation saw God's intervention and God's work and God's miracles other than Israel. No other nation, only Israel. So God has renewed the covenant. And now Moses comes down off of the mountain. And so we're going to start in verse 27. Um, He's received the law from God. He's coming back down. And this is the famous story of Moses' face glowing. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So uh, interesting story and one which has an awful lot of... um, applications out of it and especially so when we get to the New Testament because this was brought up several times or it's alluded to several times in the New Testament. Um, it, it tells us that Moses is up on the mountain and he's there with God and again he's gone 40 days and 40 nights without, without food or water. Um, I think God must be actually physically sustaining him, right? Any medical people, Tim, can you go 40 days without water? No, probably about three, maybe, right? Something like that. So God is sustaining him physically. He's in the presence of God, and he comes down the mountain, and as he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing, brilliant, to the point where the people see him and they run away. This is not just a sunburn. This is light streaming from his face. Um, Interesting little historical note The word for shone and the word for horn are very similar in Hebrew. And so if you see old statues of Moses, especially Michelangelo type era, Moses has horns because the Vulgate mistranslated this and said Moses came down the mountain with horns. It doesn't make sense in the rest of the passage because he covers his face and, and Paul is going to pick this up in the New Testament. His face is shining. He doesn't have horns, okay? But um, 
apparently he was up on the mountain, so he comes down like a mountain goat or something, I don't know, with big horns, but uh, you'll see that. If you ever see an old painting or an old statue of Moses, Anna knows it, they, he, Moses has his horns, and you look and you go, what's that supposed to mean? And that's where it came from, a mistranslation of the Bible. Um, uh, one of the things that we see here, um, and I don't want to read too much into this, but I do think it's important. Um, Moses's face is shining, and the Bible tells us why his face is shining. Did you catch it? Why was his face shining? It said it right in there. It wasn't just that he was with God. He was talking with God. Okay? So he was talking with God. It says it in, um, in verse 20 at the end. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. All right, that leads to an interesting question. Did his face shine when he came down the previous time? Ah, well, I think it would have been mentioned before. If it, was, if it had happened before, they would have been used to it. This was something new. Um, I do think there's a difference. Something different has happened on this time on the mountain than the time before. Time before he came down, and his face, as far as we know, is not shining. Now, it's possible they just didn't record it, but that would be an interesting thing to, to miss. Um, there is actually a little clue if you look at verse 28. It says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Where was he was there with the Lord? If you go back to Exodus 24, um, verse 18, it says, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In chapter 34, it says, he was there with the Lord. Here it says he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There's a different level, I think, of intimacy here than there was before. And that shouldn't surprise us. What does Moses ask before he goes up on the mountain this time? Show me your glory. Let me see you. Let me, let me enter in. And then here it says talks with God. Let, let me become intimate with you. And the result is, is that his face is glowing when he comes back down off of the mountain. Um, one of the amazing things here, I think, and it's, it's not actually stated in the passage, and it may be reading in a little bit, but, but bear with me. We know that Moses is incredibly humble, right? In fact, Moses is the most humble man to ever live, according to numbers. No one was as meek as Moses, at least at that time. Maybe somebody since then has been more meek, but Moses was more humble than anybody else. Moses was a humble man. He comes down off the mountain. He's been spending time with God, and he's totally unaware that his face is glowing. Okay, totally unaware. He has to be told that by other people. Um, Moses' humility shines forth, well, bad, bad pun there, but shines forth throughout this entire section of him being the mediator. Um, he is with God, but when you spend time with God, your focus is on God and not yourself. Totally taken away from himself. He comes down the mountain, he's totally clueless about the changes that have taken place in him.
one of the commentaries that I looked at this week said, this is actually the mark of spiritual leadership is humility. It's the mark of spiritual leadership. You have a church and the pastor is proud or a ministry and the, the person who's leading it is proud. You can almost be certain that the work is not God's work. Or it may have been at the beginning and it no longer is. Because when we're in the presence of God, it's him that we're looking at and we understand what we are in comparison. And anything that's being done is being done because of God's power flowing through us, or in this case, radiating out from us. Um, the interesting thing here as well is that the last time Moses went was up on the mountain and just before he came down, the people were very disrespectful of Moses. Their comment was, um, as for this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. And it actually was a disrespectful thing to say. And the way they said it, it, even in English, comes across as disrespectful. It was more disrespectful in the Hebrew. They weren't treating him as their leader. Um, but we see Moses' humility and what happens because of Moses' humility. Well, he is exalted. Reminds me of a verse. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he will exalt you. Moses is exalted above any other person. His face is glowing when he comes down off of the mountain. Okay, So kind of an interesting principle there. I don't know if that's what's intended to be taught here, but the humility of Moses comes through and God raises him up as the mediator for the people. Um, now, there's also an aspect of God's grace that's seen in this passage. Um, uh, there's a number of things that come out of the fact that Moses' face is shining. Um, but remember what the people are truly afraid of, what distresses them is that God may remove his presence, right? So now he comes down the mountain and Moses' face is glowing. And because of that, the people realize that God is present with them through Moses that God is truly talking to Moses, that God is truly speaking through him. So that fear that somehow God is going to remove his presence, as long as Moses' face is glowing, they know that something is happening. He goes in and speaks with God and he comes out and his face is glowing. Uh, and you pick this up in the passage because Moses, um, when he talks with the people, he is actually commanding them what the Lord has said. So Moses is telling the people what God has said. He's the intermediary or the mediator between the people and God. Because afterwards in verse 32, all the people of Israel came near. This is after they initially ran away. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in, uh, in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But the key there is he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And then that's repeated in verse 34, in the middle of the verse, it says, when he came out after he's been with God and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses's face was shining. Um, every time they looked at Moses, they realized that God was actually present with them, speaking to them and, and telling them exactly what they needed to know. Rod. Presence, 
you know, there's a, you know, sort of panic that fills the street. But now here they see God in their presence, and, and they're now in another panic. In a sense. I don't think they were disillusioned. I just think they were just flat out scared, personally. I, I don't think we want to read too much into that. I mean, if, you, if, you, if we went to church this morning and Pastor Scott stood up and all of a sudden his face was, you, you would, uh, I, that would surprise you too, you know, and this is a superstitious people and here comes Moses down off of the mountain. So, um, so now there's an odd part to this passage and that is the idea of the veil. And this can be explained to us in the New Testament. But Moses, when he speaks with them, he has his face unveiled. And then as soon as he's done talking to them the words of God, he puts the veil back over his face. And then he goes in and he speaks with God and he takes the veil off. Right? So if you read through it, that's what's happening. He takes the veil off when he's with God. He comes out and he speaks to people and he puts the veil on. Why is he doing that? Okay, um, so they would focus on the words and not his face. Okay, but again, they're yeah, they're the the the, the interesting thing is that he doesn't just leave his face unveiled all the time. I mean, why not just walk around with the glowing face? Was that? Yeah, it could be it could be his humility, or maybe he's only when he's speaking the words of God, he doesn't want them to, to, um, you know, if, he, if he's just talking with somebody, he doesn't necessarily have God's authority at that point. Anybody else? Why is this happening? Maybe his glowing face and talking about what God is commanding gives him extra authority. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, then this is really good because Paul tells us why this happens in 2 Corinthians. Um, and we'll find out who is right because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians why this happens. Paul interprets this passage for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. By the way, there's a number of places if we have time in the New Testament. There's the transfiguration. Transfiguration is going to compare Moses with Jesus. And there can be no doubt that it's the same thing because it says that Jesus went up onto the Mount Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. This is Matthew 17. And all of a sudden, his clothes were whiter than a uh, wanderer could ever make them and his face shone. And standing with him are Moses and Elijah. Um, and we see Jesus, the better mediator, <laughs> with his face glowing. But his face is glowing from intrinsic. It's coming from inside of him out. Moses, in a sense, is reflecting God's glory. Um, and Paul's gonna mention that in 2 Corinthians. And then we have in Hebrews, it talks about Moses being a, a mediator, but Christ is a better mediator. But the one that I wanna go to is 2 Corinthians chapter three. Um, it says in verse seven, now with the ministry of death, <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, way to refer to the old covenant. The old covenant is the ministry of death. 
Why is it the ministry of death? It had no power to save. It had had no power to bring life. All it could do is show you the, the hopelessness that was there if you're trying to get to God on your own efforts. None, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, so we don't miss this. This is what Moses brought down from the mountain, carved in letters of stone. This is the Ten Commandments. Came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So Paul says the ministry of death um, is coming to an end. It's temporary, but it comes with glory. But the ministry of the Spirit, which is, uh, he's going to say in a minute, is permanent, then must have greater glory. Now, you might say, how can the ministry of death have glory? Because anytime God reveals himself to us, that's glorious. And God reveals himself to the people through the Ten Commandments. He reveals himself and his character in the Old Covenant. It's a glorious covenant. But the New Covenant is even greater glory. All right, keep going. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, so now he changes this. It's not just the ministry of death. It's the ministry of condemnation. Um, need to put that there. Uh, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So this is the ministry of the Spirit or the ministry of righteousness. Glory, greater glory. All right. Uh, that is righteousness. Um, in verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have almost no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since then we have a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Um, Moses is putting the veil over his face because otherwise the Israelites would see that the glory of the covenant was coming to an end. Moses is, the glory that Moses had was fading over time. In other words, Moses went in before God and his face came out and it was like a thousand watt light bulb. But he's slowly that glory fades away. So he comes out and he speaks with the people and they see that glory, and then he puts a veil over his face so that they can't see the glory fading away. Right? That's the reason he puts the veil over his face, is to prevent the people from watching that glory fade away. So then when he goes in and speaks with God, he takes the veil off. He comes out, now his face is fully glorious again, and then he covers his face again as soon as he's done talking. He does not want them to see the glory fading away is what's happening. So it may be humility. By the way, it might be humility that's making him do it. It might be uh, embarrassment that it's fading away. We don't know why Moses actually did it, but Paul says the reason is this covenant, the ministry, the glory fades away. There's this one it never, ever does. Um, but Paul now makes an amazing 
uh, application from this. So keep, keep reading with me. He says, two applications, one that doesn't apply to us, it applies to the Jews that he's writing to here or to people who are being tempted to go back into the old covenant. He says, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil lies unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And Paul says that um, they can't see the glory of the new covenant because they're still um, enamored with the old covenant. But then, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, this is magnificent. We can gaze upon the Lord with unveiled faces. Who gazed upon the Lord with the unveiled face? In our passage, who's looking at God with an unveiled face? Moses. Moses went in and Moses looks at God, goes into the presence of God with unveiled face. Moses veiled the glory from the people so they couldn't see it fading away. But Moses is the only one who goes in and gazes at the Lord with an unveiled face. But Paul tells us that we get to gaze upon the Lord with unveiled faces. Do you understand what's being said here? You, you have the same privilege that Moses had. Moses, I mean, when you read that passage, don't you wish that you could be Moses? and go into there and come out with your face just glowing? And Paul says, you can. We can gaze upon the Lord with unveiled face. Um, we know that, but we forget it. Um, in Hebrews, what does it say about us being able to go boldly before the throne of God? We gotta look at that. Hebrews chapter, I should have written that down. Um, at the end of Hebrews, um, uh, it's uh, 10. Um, uh, just a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, this is verse 19, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience in our body washed with pure water. Um, but I'm looking actually for the verse that says, let us go boldly before the throne of God. And I'm, I thought it was there. 
Sorry about that. I should have it. But we can draw bold. We can go boldly before the throne of God. We don't. 416. Thank you. And you said that earlier and I didn't believe you. Okay. So 416. Um, Yeah. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews says you can go boldly into the throne room of God. You can go at any time and look at the Lord with an unveiled face. And the result is that we are transformed. Now, it's a little bit different than what happens to Moses. We are transformed and it says we're transformed from glory to glory. And I understand that to mean that we become more and more and more like the Savior. We become more and more like Jesus as we gaze upon him and spend time with him and, and come, become intimate with him, we are transformed. Um, if you go back to Second uh, Corinthians, You might ask the question, well, if we're going in and gazing at the Lord with an unveiled face, why don't our faces glow? (laughs) That would be kind of an interesting way of knowing if somebody had been spending time with God that week, if we came to church and the ones whose faces are glowing, we okay, you guys are good. Um, Paul explains that as well. And he talks about it in the next next section. Um, We're not gonna read the whole thing um, but go down to verse, um, verse 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So um, God gives us the light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God when we gaze upon the face of Christ but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Uh, The only difference between Moses and us is Moses, the glory was being revealed so that the people understood what God was doing. But for us, it's an inward transformation. We have these treasures in jars of clay. And and the, uh, but, but the goal is the same. The goal is to be completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When we have um, Moses going in and looking at God and coming out and his face is glowing, he's reflecting God or he has been transformed temporarily, but then that fades away. But ours is a permanent change. And so the, the actual lesson from Exodus chapter 34 is that. We go back to what's been said all the way along. The whole point of this is we want God's presence We want to be in his presence. We want to be beholding his glory. We want to know him. And as we do that, it transforms us. It transforms us from the inside out. Um, And and I do think it works its way out to the outside eventually. Um, I think we should look a little different because we're believers. But um, but I I know our faces aren't going to glow. That's not going to happen. So... Um, the, the application out of this is that we have the exact same privilege that Moses has. 
we can go in and we can gaze upon the Lord with an unveiled face. And if we do that, it should transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Rod. Yeah, that one is uh, that the world may see your good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. So certainly one aspect of being transformed from glory to glory is that our actions should begin to be more like what the Savior's actions would be. And therefore people will see the good deeds and glorify God, right? But I don't, I think the idea that it's our light shining, it's really there, I, it is a good, a good tie-in the light that's shining is what God is doing through us because of what he's doing in us, yeah. Um, and, and so that would, be a, that would be a part of it. In fact, I guess you could ask the question, how else would anybody see that inward transformation? Uh, it, it better come out in the way that our life is lived and then you can go to you know, First Peter, which we studied that if we truly um, know the Savior, if we're like Christ, then we submit to authority and we, uh, we suffer under trials and all the rest, and we do that differently because of the transformation that's taking place. Yeah. Um, the, the wonderful thing is that ours is a permanent change. As you're transformed from glory to glory, eventually we become like our Savior. Um, Moses' glory fades away. Ours, ours doesn't. Um, the contrast between Moses and Christ here as the mediators of the two covenants is a dramatic con contrast. Moses is a great mediator, but he's a man. He reflects God's glory. It doesn't come from intrinsically. He is able to stand in the gap and save his people through his, his actions, but he saves them for this old covenant. Um, but Jesus, his glory is an intrinsic glory. It comes from inside. He's not a man. He's not a servant in the house. He is a son. And he is able to save us from sin, which was impossible under the old covenant. No, 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 no. He, they, he renews the covenant. He renews the old covenant. Um, let me just say one last thing, and it's a little off point from what we're doing, but I've had this now asked a couple of times. That pen's no good. I've had this asked a couple of times. The question is, uh, and it's been asked now uh, two or three times over the last couple of weeks, well, if this covenant is temporary, it's a covenant of condemnation, it's a covenant of death, and this is the covenant that we're under, how did the people in the Old Testament get saved? Right. In other words, if you were under that old covenant. And, and the answer is always, this is the Sunday school answer, how were they saved? Through Jesus Christ, okay? Jesus is the Sunday school answer. It works for everything, but it works in this case. Uh, no one is saved through the old covenant. Everyone who is ever saved is saved through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. The old covenant, if you placed your faith and trust in, in God, in the Old Covenant, um, it, would, it would cause, it would bring about salvation, but through Jesus Christ. 
a person who was bringing their sacrifices and repenting of their sins, their sins are covered until the time that Christ comes. They were placing their faith in something that was unseen. We place our faith looking backwards, their faith was looking forward. They weren't saved by keeping the law, no one could do that. But that doesn't mean that no one was saved prior to Jesus coming on the earth. There were plenty of people who were saved, just read Hebrews 11. And they were always saved by looking forward to what Jesus had was going to do. They didn't understand that, but you don't have to. They placed their faith, well, we don't understand all that Christ did at the cross either, but they placed their faith in the, the, the coming Messiah and that God would, would save them through someone to come. And that's where their salvation comes from, Is Daniel. There, um, and I wholeheartedly believe that, but I've had that question asked before and I always give the same answer, but I need to do more of a study for that. Like, is there a, an address in the Bible you can go to that really helps you with that? You know, I think um, you can go to Hebrews and it would help. And I think, um, I, you know what, I'd have, to, I'd have to do some research on it too. That'd be a good, yeah. good topic to do. Um, the, how, we, how we know that to be true. Yeah, Rod, and then Jay. When, when Christ is crucified, and at, at the point where he dies and the, and the um, curtain is ripped in two, then it also says that um, um, that the tombs were opened up and many of the saints rose from the tombs. So it had to be, they had to be those who were looking to the death of Christ. Yeah. Well, and John the Baptist died before Jesus was born, and we would be absolutely certain that John the Baptist would be, um, would be saved. And so, and, and again, you go to Hebrews, and you had a whole list of people. And what does it say in Hebrews 11? They were looking for a city that was to come. They were placing their faith in, in the promises that had been made. So that would be a good place to start, would be Hebrews 11. Jay. Lisa. Yeah, um, when I say here that we gaze, actually Jesus is our, our mediator, but he's a better mediator. So rather than having that between, he actually allows us to enter the, the throne room of God. I don't know, uh, I didn't mean to imply that we're in the mediatorial role that Moses was. We have, the, I'm saying we have the same privilege that Moses had to gaze upon the Lord with an unveiled face. Um, the ministry of reconciliation, I believe that's the preaching of, I, I'm speaking without having studied it, but I think that's uh, the message that goes out. We're ambassadors for Christ to, to tell people the gospel because the ministry of reconciliation would be bringing them to, uh, to Christ. So, 
Anyways, I don't know if I, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's, any other comments or questions? Yeah, well, and I think if you went even back further, let's assume that Adam, and we don't know that, but that Adam also would be in heaven. What would he be in heaven based upon? It would be based probably upon that promise that, that the seed of the woman is gonna crush the head of the serpent. That's all he knows. But he knows that there's a God and he knows that there's some sort of salvation work that's coming. And if you place your faith in that, that's probably all that he was able to do at that point. Abraham had a little bit more revelation, Moses even more, and as you go along, you can get a clearer picture, but it's not until Christ come that it all makes, it all makes sense. Uh, certainly, it would be believing the promises of God and then, and then acting accordingly. And not perfectly, because even Abraham didn't act perfectly. He, he had the incident with Hagar. Uh, where he didn't really trust the promises of God, but it didn't take away his salvation. So we, we really don't know how much revelation the, the Israelites had about the Messiah, do we? Like, there's not a lot mentioned. No, not at this point there isn't. Like, how much did Adam pass on to his children to, you know, like even, even Noah? You know, like, to people's information about what was coming was, was very minimal. Um, yeah, the, my guess is it was passed down pretty carefully mm -hmm. as a storytelling culture. Yeah. But you would have had the information about the seed of the woman and then the information that God would send that through Abraham all the nations would be, would be blessed. Through the seed of Abraham all the nations would be blessed. So, anyways, opened up a can of worms there right at the end. but. Um, the, the point of really this entire chapter, this two chapters in Exodus, is seek God's face. Uh, desire to be in His presence. A desire to be transformed from glory to glory. And pray and, and, and ask God to help us toward that end. Because that's the goal. That's what we were made for, was to be like Christ. And we have an incredible privilege of gazing with an unveiled face on our Lord, and it has a transformative effect. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer.